The following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. As we look around us uh, today at different churches uh, in our midst, in our denomination and other denominations, especially in the context of the past two years, we see many that are even now just beginning back in corporate worship. Eska and I have friends in Indonesia who are only two weeks ago, three weeks ago, beginning to meet again one-on-one, or I should say (laughs) face-to-face. in corporate worship. It may be surprising to us who've been, really, we had almost no break from corporate worship by God's grace. Um, You may have even heard on the news the issues in Shanghai, this so-called zero COVID policy, and people cannot even leave their houses, police breaking down doors, pulling people to be tested or be quarantined or to submit to the government and their mandates that they have in their wisdom declared, and even the WHO has said, this is foolishness. We are confronted, though, yet again, with this pressing question. Should the church, should Christians, uh, simply submit to the government's requirements for, uh, in particular, COVID restrictions, but in particular, uh, dealing with the meeting of the body of Christ? Should we faithfully gather together or should we say, well, God has put a government over us, therefore we should submit, therefore we should do what the government tells us to do, or, and by God's grace in South Carolina, this has not been the case, and we can rejoice. But really, should Christians be content with online worship? Should we be content simply to give in to the pressure of the culture, uh, the pressure of those who even would ridicule Christians who meet weekly for worship instead of giving in? Well, the text before us today will help us to answer those very questions as we look at the wisdom of our Savior, the wisdom of Almighty God, Christ become flesh. We need to listen attentively to the command before us because it is through Jesus Christ that we see wisdom expressed, displayed, but also how we ought to live in the world in the days that are in front of us. You'll notice that as we read in chapter 12, the beginning of the chapter starts with this parable of the wicked vine dressers. Uh, Really, this is a parable in which Jesus gives this scathing condemnation of the Jewish leaders from whom God will take away the vineyard that is Israel. And they're seeking, these Jewish leaders are then seeking to lay hands on Jesus. Notice in verse 12, they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And so we see here this reaction by the Jewish leaders, and they're coming now to seek reasons to arrest Jesus. Remember, by chapter 12 in the book of Mark, Jesus is very close to his crucifixion. He's already in Jerusalem, and the, the pressure, the questions, the tension is, is, is raising more and more. And so as we look at our text this evening, really what the Pharisees are coming to do is they're coming to test him. And there are three tests, three questions that are going to be posed to Jesus in the ensuing chapter in chapter 12. And the first is the question before us this evening. 
Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And that question is brought to Jesus by the Pharisees. Then the second question, beginning in verse 18, is a question about the resurrection. You'll see it goes, it runs from verse 18 through verse 27. That some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, they came and they asked him, Teacher, Moses wrote to us, if a man's brother dies, basically, will he be raised again? Whose wife, uh, who will, uh, will he be married? He leaves no children, uh, and so on. So the question of the resurrection then is brought by the Sadducees, those who believe there's no resurrection, to trip Jesus up. And then thirdly, the question of the greatest commandment, beginning in verse 28. And this is brought by the scribes, the third group of the Jewish leaders. Which is the greatest commandment? These are men who would have written down those 600 plus commandments. Which one, Jesus, is the greatest? Seeking to trip him up, seeking to find a way that they could bring him to trial and rid themselves of this, uh, of this what they see as a tormentor or in the case of verse 12, as they're seeking to lay hands on him and kill him. And so our text before us lays out this simple point, that Jesus uses the hypocrisy of deceitful men to teach his people how to live in the present age. Jesus uses the hypocrisy of deceitful men to teach his people, you and I, how to live in the present age. And so we'll look at verses 13 and 14, the hypocrisy of deceitful men. And then verses 15 through 17, Jesus teaches his people how to live in this present age. So first, the hypocrisy of these leaders, of these men. Notice verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Why are the Herodians, why are the Pharisees coming to Jesus to catch him? The hunt is on. They're looking to make him trip up, to, to be able to get him, as it were, as a deer, to, to put him to death, catch him unawares. And these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, are important because they represent two diametrically opposed factions, if you will. The Pharisees representing the law keepers. They think they represent God. And the Herodians, on the other hand, literally, these are the people of Herod, the Roman ruler. And so they represent, if you will, Caesar. So you have two groups coming with this, just by the fact that they come together, you could say, is deceptive in and of itself. Because they come to Jesus as if to resolve some dispute between themselves. As if the Herodians were saying, well, we should pay taxes because we're Herodians. We're from Herod. And as if the Pharisees were to say, well, no, you shouldn't pay taxes because we are spiritual. We are men of God. We are men of the law of God. And the law of God clearly would not want us to pay tribute to a man. And so in this sense, they come deceptively seeking in their own wisdom, in their own understanding, in their own abilities to trap the Son of God. And there, even as they come, they're denying Jesus' very divinity. They're asserting salvation through their own wisdom, through their own cunning, through their own trap that they're setting for Christ. And this is, brothers and sisters, the epitome of pride. And it's important for us as we look at these Pharisees, it's, it's easy and it's very easy for us to simply say, well, I am not like them. The church is not like them. But really, when we see pride coming up in our own hearts, when we see ourselves seeking our own wisdom, our own way, 
our own counsels. Well, then we embody this demonic activity, this hypocritical activity of the Pharisees. When we do not seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then we are just like the Pharisees, just like the Herodians. And so they're setting this deceptive trap, or what they think is this great cunning trap, but they're also displaying hypocritical flattery. They're praising Jesus, notice there in verse 14, for his sincerity, and while they are practicing hypocrisy. Verse 14, when they came, or when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true, you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Notice the first word there, teacher. They come with this word that should have been a, a word of respect, a word of honor, of giving over their own supposed learning to one who knew so much more. And yet they use this word almost as a way of sort of convincing the people that they were submitting, that they were on the surface being humble. So there's this hypocritical flattery, this hypocritical appeal to men. And they're making even more than that a hypocritical assumption that Christ would be swayed by their words about him. Think about the irony of that. They are, they are seeking to trap him in his words because they expect him to answer the question truthfully. And yet they do not speak truthfully to him. They are not speaking honestly to the Son of God who knows their hypocrisy. They set him up to say what he really thinks. They don't want him to just change the answer so that you can't bring a man to trial off of, you know, if he's, his words are not consistent with his actions. Well, you have conflicting, conflicting evidence. They're expecting him to say what he has lived and to live as he speaks. So not only do they give this hypocritical or, or make this hypocritical assumption, but they also make hypocritical statements of belief. Notice what they say about the Son of God. We know, we believe that you are true and you care about no one for you do not regard the person of man, but you teach the way of God in truth. Each of these statements are true of our Savior. And there are four statements we could really look at here. First, you are true because Christ reveals the, the, the God of heaven and earth in reality, in truth, as he is, in all of his grandeur, in all of his holiness, in all of his wisdom and knowledge. Second, you care about no one. Jesus does not modify the truth to suit men. He does not tamper with the word of God, but rather he uses the word of God. He communicates the word of God in the way he lives, in the way he speaks, in the way he thinks, in the way he reacts. And he does not care what men say in that way. That they do speak what is true about him, that he does not care and does not fit his message to men's expectations or to man's opinions. He does not fear men. He fears God. And thirdly, you do not regard the person of man, whether rich, poor, proud, humble, woman, men are all judged alike. 
We might even think again of this whole notion of Gentile, Jew, slave, and free. All are brought before the throne of God and leveled at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners saved by grace. Christ demonstrates that in his life, in his death, in his burial, resurrection, and ascension, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. And so the Pharisees cannot imagine They cannot fathom being unswayed by or unconcerned about the opinions of men. Their statements of supposed belief about Jesus demonstrate that very fact. So number four then, you teach the way of God in truth. Genesis chapter 18, this is really one of the first times we hear this phrase, the way of God. And this is God speaking about Abraham And it says this, that he, Abraham, might command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord, of Jehovah. This way of the Lord for the Pharisees, this is the way of the Israelite. This is the way to be the Jew of all Jews, the person after God's own heart, to fear the Lord, to follow his ways, to love him as Abraham did by faith. Psalm chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That The way of the righteous follows the way of the Lord. John chapter 14, Jesus himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. There's no way to the Father but through me. What wickedness and what deceit that these truths that are so precious to us that are so precious to Scripture, that outline the very redemptive history that Christ came to preach, that Christ came to realize, that that blinds these Pharisees, that it hardens their hearts, and that they cannot see. But we know ultimately that unless God opens the eyes, unless God unstops the ear, and we shall not see, and we shall not hear. And this, the Pharisees demonstrate that it's not the words that you say, that change the heart. It's the God of the heart that transforms and renews and opens blind eyes. So they also then bring a deceptive dilemma. After they've brought these supposed statements of belief, then they bring this dilemma, these two options before Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or is it not lawful to pay? And you can imagine again the Pharisees on the one hand will know we shouldn't pay. The Herodians and the other, well, yes, of course, Caesar requires it, therefore you should. And so they think that they've got him in this trap. If he says, pay this tax, well, then the people will be willing to charge Jesus out of hatred, out of disgust, and the Pharisees will have won. If Jesus says, don't pay, (coughs) then the Romans will be willing to convict him of treason. And so we see then that they think they've set up this great dichotomy, this great, these two options, he has to pick one or the other. But I think it's also important for us to know what it is that they're speaking about. What is this tax that they're asking if they they should pay? This tax refers specifically to a poll tax. It was exacted for every individual for his own person. We might think of it as a head tax. It's not an income tax, not a sales tax, not a, not a, you're not paying for the land at your house. 
This is a tax on you as an individual to live in the Roman Empire, to experience the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. This is your citizenship payment, if you will. You want to be part of the empire? Here it is. And so for the Jews, this was a particularly grueling tax because this was the sign of Roman oppression, the sign of Roman tribute that they are now paying almost as if they were paying to a suzerain, right? The vassal and the suzerain. They're having to pay tribute to this, to this Roman god, if you will, Caesar, who thinks that he has taken the place of the Jewish god. And they're paying. And so that's kind of, in their mind, they're setting up this idea, well, if I pay Caesar, then I'm submitting to him as god. If I don't pay, then I'm submitting to God as king. So first, recognize how insidious, as we look at these first two verses, how insidious hypocrisy is. The hypocrite seeks his own gain. He pursues his own glory. He revels in his own wisdom. And he is that fool who loves to hear himself speak. He is the devil who lies for his own gain, who says, I know when he doesn't know. I believe when he doesn't believe. His mouth spews deceit. Brothers and sisters, flee this evil. This is, why we, this is why the ninth commandment, do not bear false witness, is so important for us as Christians because to, de- to deceive is the epitome of, of demonic activity. The devil is the father of lies. And here the Pharisees show themselves to be children of the devil. Consider the words out of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through uh, the end of the chapter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in all hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And I'll skip to the end. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The Pharisees are seeking to overcome good with evil, seeking to deceive and to have their own way. Do you rely on your own cunning, your own wisdom, when dealing with the realities in front of you today or even confronting sin in your own heart or in the lives of others? Do you seek that wisdom that is from above in prayer first? And when you profess, when we confess together out of the 16th chapter of the confession, these words that are sweet to us, that remind us and push us towards the word of God and and convict us as we consider the orthodox position of the church, do those professions of faith in worship, do they simply reflect words coming out of your mouth? Or do they reflect a heart that has been transformed by the gospel? A heart that is convicted, that is changed by God's Spirit, do you have little or no regard for what you say? Are you simply mimicking? Are you simply repeating? We are to to be men and women of truth, men and women of sincerity, and especially fathers and mothers as we lead our children in these things. That we we are before them to be an example of Christ, 
We are to be open and honest. Our faith is to be plastered on our life. That we live out of the faith that God has given to us. We don't live out of hypocrisy, showing to be thinking, wanting others to think that we are something we are not. So we see the hypocrisy of deceitful men, but we also see that Jesus teaches his people how to live in this age. Verse 15, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, oh, what a glorious statement about Jesus, that here is one who knows the hypocrisy of these deceitful men. John chapter 2, when he, Jesus is speaking there about the human heart, it said, or John is speaking about Jesus, rather. He, that is Jesus, knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he knew what was in man. Jesus demonstrates here divine omniscience, divine knowledge, total knowledge of every human being, from the heart to the head to the actions that are, disp- that are displayed. What is hypocrisy? What is it to be, to, to be this, this two-faced kind of person? What's well, that idea of play acting? You've probably heard this before, right? That in the theater you put on a mask and you are something at one point and then you put on another mask and you are another thing at another point. But underneath, the actor has not changed. The realities of what is lying under that mask are the same. You're simply changing a face. You're concealing your thoughts, concealing your feelings, concealing the true character that lies underneath that mask. So we see here then that the rest of the teaching of Jesus flows out of his knowledge of the heart. God acts with full knowledge. The Son of God acts with full knowledge. The Spirit of God acts with full knowledge. And so he teaches. And Jesus uses a coin and a question to teach. What does he say there? He says, get me a denarius. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and whose inscription is this? On the front of that coin, there would be the image of Tiberius Caesar. He'd be seated and it'd be the profile of his face. And around around his image would be the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Son of the divine Augustus. Here is the son of God, Tiberius Caesar. On the back of that coin would be Caesar's image again, on full, in full view, and around his image, Max, or Pontifex Maximus, high priest. He is God. He is high priest, according to the Romans. And so they bring this coin to Jesus, and on the face of that coin, he's asking, who is that? Caesar, they say. Whose image? Caesar's. Whose inscription? Caesar's. He's written on the coin. He's pictured on the coin. He owns the coin. And Jesus says then, render to him what is his and to God what is his. We we know this statement. This is one of those things, if you ask almost any Christian, they might know this statement sort of taken out of the context of any of the Gospels. But what is it to render? This is not just the idea of giving. In fact, the Pharisees, when they ask, shall we pay or shall we not pay in verse 15, they use that word give. Shall we give or shall we not give? And Jesus, interestingly enough, he uses a different word. He doesn't say give. He says give back, render. That's what render means. It means to give back something that you owe. 
Something that has been required of you and you must pay. It would be wrong for you not to pay, not to render. The Pharisees are, they're simply saying, well, should we give or not give? But Jesus is saying, no, you give what you owe. He draws out this issue of authority because Caesar does own things. You would not have that coin if he had not given it to you. But Caesar's authority is limited to the physical world, limited to physical coins, limited to physical images and inscriptions. And Jesus recognized Pilate's own authority. Think about at his trial. What did Jesus say to Pilate? You could have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus recognized over and over that the authority that Caesar has, the authority that Pilate has, that Herod has, comes from the Father, from God. Therefore, Christ is arguing here from the lesser Caesar to the greater God. So Jesus doesn't simply answer their question, but he adds to it as if to say, you Pharisees, you Herodians are fixated on things of earth. You're fixated on physical, the physical kingdoms of men when you ought to be concerned with the things of God. Interesting, he just said that to Peter in Mark chapter 8. So lest we think that we are immune from this way of thinking, Peter himself struggled and Jesus shows Peter, reveals to him that Jesus must die, that he must uh, be the redeemer of the world. Peter says, no, Lord. Jesus says, you're focused on the earth when you ought to be fixated, focused on the things of God, the things of heaven. Our Westminster Confession, chapter 23, says this. God, the supreme Lord, the king of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and for the public good. And we know there are questions. Well, what happens when a king or what happens when a president or what happens when rulers overstep their authority when they do not do what is right, as in the case of COVID, as in the case of shutting down churches? But we know that we are required first and foremost to obey the Lord in all things, that his law supersedes all other laws, that the laws of men are just that, the laws of men, that they must reflect the law of God if they are to be of use and of authority. So the image on the coin demonstrates Caesar's authority. But I challenge you today that you bear an image far greater you bear the image of your sovereign king, Jesus. You bear the image of God. We read in Genesis chapter 1. If we owe Caesar, if we ought to render to Caesar what is his, how much more should we render our due what we owe to the God of heaven and earth? You'll notice that when he teaches, when he says these words, well, how do they respond? They marveled at him. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the people are struck dumb. They are silent before the king of heaven and earth, before his wisdom. And the question is, how should we then respond when governments require obedience over and above obedience to God? We submit to God first in all things. He is the greater he is sovereign over all of his creation. No law can supersede his law or counteract his dominion. 
But we must seek that wisdom which Christ demonstrates here to offer to Caesar the honor that is due to him, but to God the infinitely higher honor. Think of that verse of the hymn, O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee, I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. And so Jesus Christ, God's only Son, knows your heart. He knows the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So then, are you, fellow believer, are you compelled, convinced that just as Christ used these simple tools to teach, that he can use you, whether you are a weak vessel, a struggling parent, a weary saint? Christ is not setting up some separation between Caesar's authority as if he owns the things of earth, God owns the things of heaven. It is the Pharisees who try. It is the Herodians who try to set up this distinction. All things are under God's authority. Christ's wisdom, his power, his holiness should then enliven us, invigorate us, propel and compel you to do the tasks that he has for you today. For his glory and not for man's accolades. Because you bear the image, the inscription of the creator of heaven and earth. Let us pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.